Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Big Bass Podcast, the fishing show where size matters. My name is Ken Duke. And I'm Terry Battisti. Our producer and engineer is Nathan Benson. Before we kick off this episode of the Big Bass Podcast, we did a favor. If you're coming back to the show because you enjoyed previous episodes, please click the subscribe button now. Uh, it'll help us grow the channel and allow us to continue bringing you the stories of the world's biggest and most interesting bass. And if you're checking us out for the first time and like what you hear or see, uh, subscribe and hit the bell so you know uh, each time that we post a new uh, a podcast. Um, we also hope that you'll check out the website, thebigbasspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our shows, special bonus uh, material, uh, the exclusive Big Bass Podcast uh, calculator, and lists of all the state and world record fish. So... Ken, let's get started on this uh, this episode here. What are we talking about this week? Uh, it's this, Terry, this is the perfect topic for right now. Texas has been really top of mind recently in the big bass world. We've got giant fish coming out of Lake Fork, OHIV, a number of other uh, reservoirs in the Lone Star State. And really, that kind of stuff has been, been fairly normal for Texas over about the last 40 years. Uh, the current state record in Texas is over 18 pounds, which places it fourth among all states behind only Georgia, California, and Florida's uncertified record uh, that you can yeah, learn about right that, here. You just had to throw that in there, didn't you? I, I did because it's very important. <laughs> the Fritz Friebel. We've got an episode on Fritz, and folks, you can check it out. We'll put the link right here for you. But, you know, uh, big bass have not always been the calling card of nope. Texas. Uh, yep. In fact, before the introduction of the Florida bass, Texas had a very lackluster track record when it came to big largemouths. Yeah. Texans may say that everything is bigger in Texas, but when it came to bass, that just wasn't true. Yeah, no. It, you know, what we've encountered in the last, I mean, it, it isn't just the last five years. I mean, it's been since the, the, the late 80s, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, but, I mean, literally the last five years or so, it, it, it seems like every single big, big fish has now transferred from California and is coming out of Texas. You know, we had a 17 this week come out of OHIV. I mean, that's an incredible fish. No matter where it's caught, it doesn't matter. Um, but all of this is because of one program, the, the Texas Sherlunker program, uh, you know, no, not even close, Terry. We're going to dig into that. This uh, <laughs> nothing to do with Cher Lunker. Nothing. No. Nothing. Really, we're going to we're going to talk about that. This is not a Cher Lunker thing. <laughs> we're going to have a difference of opinion on this. But go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, you, you didn't see you didn't see, you know, I mean, we're going to talk about a big fish tonight. But it has nothing. It's not, not even. It barely even gets on the share locker. It doesn't even get in the top fifty, right? I mean, not even so, close. Not even close. Not even close. So you know, un, uh, until they started doing the the California thing and and bringing in Florida fish, um, you know, Texas, like you said, was it was lackluster. It was big time lackluster. Um, so. Uh, and you know, anyway, in this episode of the Big Bass Podcast, we're, we're going to turn the clock back to 1943 when the original record was, or I would say, the, maybe not the original record, but the record that stood for 40 some odd years. Uh, 
and and it's what helped launch the the state of Texas into the the big bass spotlight. Exactly. We're going back to 1943, as Terry mentioned. We're gonna we're gonna follow uh, the exploits of an angler named Harold Richard or H. R. McGee, and H. R. McGee was born in 1901 in of all places, San Francisco, California. Not exactly the hotbed of bass fishing. Uh, H.R. Oh. <laughs> had an eighth grade education. He served in the U.S. Army during World War One, and he also lived in, in Colorado and later moved, of course, to Texas, where he lived in the San Antonio area for much of his life. His nickname uh, with the last name McGee back in the back in the 30s and 40s, if you had the last name McGee, you're probably going to be called Fibber. And, and it wasn't a reference to the propensity to tell a lot of lies. It was all about a really popular radio comedy that started in 1935 and ran on radio and even very briefly on television until about 1959. And that program starred uh, a real-life married couple named Jim and, and Marion McGee. And uh, they were, you know, the, the husband was the wacky, unpredictable storyteller, and the... Uh, the wife was the smart but tough one. You know, we've seen that that old trope so many times. Um, and, and we'll play a little clip for you so you can get a feel for it. It's kind of like The Simpsons before The Simpsons. Oh, my gosh, a camp stove. That's what I need. Hey, bud, is anything new in camp stoves? Oh, yes, indeed, sir. We have the new post-war models now. Oh. Built-in egg timer, fish scaler, bathing suit dryer, and corn popper. Solid steel only weighs 97 pounds. Ninety-seven pounds? How could anybody carry a stove like that? Well, that's what makes this stove so unique, madam. You don't have to carry it. The legs are on clockwork hinges, and it walks along behind you from camp to camp. <laughs> now, H.R. McGee had nothing at all to do with this show, Fibber McGee and Molly. But like a lot of people, he, he was stuck with that nickname. And, uh, and for most of his working life, H.R. McGee was a bus driver. But he was also, Terry, an extremely avid bass angler. And he was so well-known in his community as a bass angler that, that fairly often local newspapers would, would pick up the stories of, of how his fishing was. Had he caught any good fish? Had he caught a lot of fish? Things like that. He was that well-known. And after he caught this fish that we're going to talk about tonight, uh, he was sometimes identified in the press as the king of Texas bass fishermen. Direct from San Francisco, California, where all the records, you know, come from. <laughs> that that is a strange but, twist to it. It really yeah. is. <laughs> but the the other thing that's interesting is that, you know, you know, unless you're probably under 40 years old, you don't know what the, the term fib or fibber means. And, and that's not something as an angler that you want to have tacked onto you in any form or fashion uh it means that you do not tell the truth uh and, and so to be tagged with fibber uh and being a bass fisherman that he was uh yeah i i, I would have tried to have alienated myself from all things fibber so but you know the catch what would he, he catches this big fish you know so tell us a little bit about this big catch yeah, the, the date was January 16th, 1943. McGee was 41 years old at the time. He was working in San, San Antonio as a bus driver, and uh, he, he had a wife and a nine-year-old son. 
the weather was apparently cold that day, and he was fishing, Terry, at a lake that I know you have fished in the past called yep. Medina Lake, about 40 miles southwest yep. of San Antonio. It had been impounded 30 years earlier, and it was a pretty good-sized lake, about 5,400 acres. Yeah, it's a big lake, and, and, and you got to consider the time. You know, this is before all the dams were put in that, that you know, created Lake Fork, Sam Rayburn. You know, a, a lot of the lakes in, 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 in Texas that appear now did not exist back then. So Medina was, it was one of the few lakes in the state of Texas that you could actually bass fish on. Um so, you know, the gear that he was using uh, for this catch, uh, it's the picture that we're going to show later shows that there's a head and river run in it, but there's also some, uh, some thought that it was caught on or some rumor that it was caught on a, a creek, creek chub plunker. Uh, for those folks that you know uh, that, that don't know what a river run is, it was, it was probably the premier crankbait or bait that we would consider a crankbait uh, in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Uh, in fact, I think the uh, the river run came out in the 30s, didn't it, Ken? Uh, Terry, I'm going to bow to your superior knowledge on yeah. that. I, all I really know is uh, I know when, when I see one, and I know yeah. it was it was definitely one of Hedden's most popular baits in that era, yeah. it's, by it's, far. That is, that is the, the, the bait that I caught my first, what I call a real bass on. And it was... Sorry. It was a, over a pound and a half. Uh, I caught it at El Dorado Park, which was about a mile and a half from my house. Uh, and so the Head and River Run means a lot to me. Um, but, you know, uh, other than, you know, knowing possibly one of, you know, a 50-50 shot, whether it was a Head and River Run or a, a Creek Chub Plunker, we don't know anything really else about the catch at all. We don't know his rod. We don't know his reel, his line. Uh, none of that is, is known. Yet none of that made it into the story. Uh, sometimes with these old stories like this, Terry, uh, we're lucky to find out anything at all about the gear. And if yeah. we find out anything at all about the gear, it usually is the lure or the bait that was used. So just the fact yeah. that we have some information about a river run. What we can tell you about the river run, uh, or which was probably the bait he used to catch the fish, was he didn't even have a chance to wind it down and get it wobbling and moving because uh, he spotted some bass chasing minnows in some shallow water and he cast a bait out there and pretty much as soon as the bait hit the water uh this fish climbed all over it yeah yep yeah he, you know he, he he said it was you know uh the water exploded the shock broke my rod in two pieces and from then on, it was a battle royale with the Queensberry rules thrown overboard, whatever the hell the Queensberry rules are. And I need to look that up because... I think the Queensberry rules were, were rules for boxing and fisticuffs. Back oh, in really? The, yeah, back in the 19th century, maybe even earlier. I so think. that means you could, drop your, you could drop your trunks and do whatever? Uh, probably uh, not. <laughs> probably yeah, anyway. not. But so, another case of a guy, you know, we don't know. This sounds like somebody's putting words into H.R. McGee's mouth, you know, the Queensberry oh, yeah. rules and uh, Battle Royal. And uh, mm -hmm. then he says, after the most exciting 30 minutes of my life, I oh, finally God. hauled him into the boat. 30 yeah. minutes. That's, yeah. that's stretching it. Yeah. I mean, that, that goes all the way back to H.W. Uh, Ross and his 45-minute fight. Another yeah. show that we will link yes. to right here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, you look at these, you know, cast, 
catch and boat videos of the day. You know, Butch Brown, Oliver and I, uh, anybody catching these big fish. And yes, I know the tackle is way better today than it was back in the 40s or the 1800s. But I mean, these guys are subduing, you know, high teen fish in less than two minutes. Uh, Oftentimes less than 30 seconds. I was going to say that, Ken, but, you know, I decided to throw in a little bit of uh, padding there. Um, yeah, it, it, it's crazy, you know, but I mean, I, I guess we have to consider the time. I mean, there's no doubt that Faber McGee was, uh, not using a rod or a reel of the caliber of today. He was using a knuckle buster. He was probably using, uh, possibly in the forties, he might've been using braided nylon line, but most likely not. Um, I think, yeah, I think he's going to be using uh, some sort of cotton-type braid. Cotton or silk? Your silk braid, yeah. Uh, yep. Probably testing, let's say, in that eight, maybe around 18-pound test at most. Mm-hmm. Uh, something in that range. But what we know indisputably was this was a legitimately big fish. Oh, yeah. And There's no doubt We've got that. the dimensions. One of the great things about this story is we do know the dimensions of that fish. We know we know that fish, what it weighed, and, and Terry, take us through the dimensions there. Yeah, so the, the measurements of McGee's fish, uh, and, and we have a photo uh, with McGee's nine-year-old son, uh, Richard, standing next to the fish. Uh, the length is 28 and three-quarter inches long, and the girth is 22 inches. And... This will come up later with the uh, Big Bass Podcast calculator. That gives a length-girth ratio of 1.31. The weight, which is interesting, uh, if you've looked at our our past uh, uh, Fritz Friebel show, uh, the weight at the lake weighed 13 pounds, 8 ounces, uh, immediately after it was caught. And then... They took it into San Antonio uh, to have it notarized. And, Which is about 40, 40 miles away. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a hell of a drive. So I don't know what the roads in Texas were like back in the 40s, but I guarantee you they weren't interstates. Uh, it, you know, it, it may have taken an hour, hour and a half, two hours, who knows how long to travel that, that 40 miles. You know, plus you got to get a boat on a trailer all that crap. Uh, oh, a trailer probably on a car top. More realistically There's, in that yeah, era. Yeah, I mean, highly, highly possible. You know, so it's, it's interesting. You know, when we talked about the Friedel fish, you know, weighing 20 pounds, 2 ounces at the lake on a spring scale. And then they get it into Friedel's brother's meat shop uh, a couple of hours later, we assume. And Friedel's 22 loses 10 ounces. Uh, it's kind of interesting because this fish, from the moment that it's caught until it's actually, you know, weighed on certified scales in San Antonio, it only lost eight ounces. So well, let's that let's actually, get let's do a Rod Serling let's do a Rod Serling do 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 moment here because Freebel in 1923 catches a fish at the lake that weighs 20 pounds two ounces. Hours later, in San Antonio, Florida. It weighs exactly eight ounces less. Yeah. Then in 1943, 20 years later, H.R. McGee catches a, a fish that weighs 13.8 at the lake. He takes it to San Antonio, Texas, 
where yeah. it weighs eight ounces less. So it's a loss of eight ounces in both cases. They're both having to drive to San Antonio. Is this is this Twilight Zone or is this a coincidence? I think that, yeah, it's it's you know the Bermuda Triangle, the UFOs and balloons. I think you know. You cannot tell me UFOs are not involved here, and they may be shot down <laughs> by the American military soon. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so anyway, you know, back to the fish in in its measurements. Uh, we don't know how long it was out of the water. You know how long that drive was. Blah blah blah. Uh, and, and this is one of the things that we want to talk to everybody out there, you know, about the, the, the calculator that's at thebigbasspodcast.com. This calculator was made specifically for fish over 14 and a half pounds. And its sweet spot is in that 19 to 21 pound range. Uh, when we put the numbers in for this fish... Uh, it predicts that the weight of, of uh, McGee's fish was 16.12 pounds, which is, I mean, that's, you know, way off, way off. When you go and you, you look at to see what the error is, and, you know, if you've read the article that's on the BigBassPodcast.com, uh, you know that the number that it puts out is not just, that's it's not the actual weight uh you have to go down and you have to look at a chart and we're going to try to get this fixed so you don't have to guess at what the what the error is but the length to girth ratio that i mentioned earlier of 1.31 does not even show up on the chart to calculate what the error is and the reason for that is is because when you get into these fish that are smaller than 14 and a half pounds they're always longer than they are deep and that ratio is a lot bigger. So, uh, you know, a, a 19 or a 20-pound fish has a length-to-girth ratio in the range of 1.15 or 1.17, something like that. Uh, something with a 1.13, if you put that in there, you put measurements in there, and you see something that's above 1.30, don't even think that it's going to be accurate. So I just want to throw that out there. Uh, it's not accurate for those size fish. It just means our fans out there, the folks watching the podcast, need to catch bigger, bigger fish so you'll not have to deal with that error. Well, uh, but but I also, Ken, real quick, I, I just want to say this, is that you know we're working with the Texas Park and Wildlife Division right now, uh, and they're sending us some data. We're trying to collect data from other areas to where we will be able to generate some calculators that will work in the northwest, or excuse me, the, in, in the northern tier lakes uh, and, and, and various other places. That'll be a hell of a lot more accurate than what is currently out there. I'm excited to talk about the lake here, Terry, because those of us who are, are big bass fans, big bass chasers, uh, many of us had never heard of Medina, Medina Lake uh, and might never have heard of Medina Lake had yeah. it not been for H.R. McGee and his uh, state record from 1943. But uh, what people may not realize is that Medina Lake in the 40s and the 30s was it for Texas oh, yeah. big fish. Yeah. Over, the, uh, over the years, over about a 12, 13-year stretch of the field and stream uh, fishing contest, Medina Lake placed high in the, in the southern region rankings um, a dozen times. Uh, they posted, sometimes they finished second and third place 
in those things with fish weighing up to 12 and a half, 13 pounds. And McGee's fish, of course, was recognized as the state record almost immediately. Yeah. Because nobody could recall a fish of 13 and a half pounds being caught in the state of Texas. So it was almost immediately recognized as a state record by the record-keeping authority of the day. And the, the entity that keeps the records in Texas has changed a lot throughout the years. For a long time, it was the Texas Outdoor Writers Association. And, and then the uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife Division took it over. And, and so it's gone through multiple hands like it has in a lot of states. But, yeah. uh, Terry, apparently Medina Lake wasn't good enough. Because on <laughs> November 7th, 1950, after they discovered there were some rough fish like gar and carp in the lake, they took their number one trophy bass producer and did what? Wrote and owned it. <laughs> they wrote and owned it. They put chemicals uh, hey. in it that took the oxygen out of the water and killed everything. Not just the gar and the carp that they were trying to get rid of, but the bass, the bluegill, the catfish, the crappie, everything killed it all yeah, yeah. which i find yeah. shocking no pun intended <laughs> well they don't use electricity to eat no 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 it's a, a chemical they use a chemical called rotenone <laughs> yeah just a, and it, what it does it takes the oxygen out and these fish all float to the surface you know and and are dead shortly thereafter so what, what a terrible yeah. situation well, that that killed this great fishery or at least temporarily because well, they did well, restock yeah. it yeah, it, but the whole reason that I went to Medina was because of these old records. And is that right? You know, I have a buddy of mine that lives in San Antonio that I used to go visit quite often. And uh, you know, he, you know, where did you fish? You know, he'd fish all the local lakes, and, but he kept telling me about Medina, Medina, Medina. And oh yeah, it held a state record for Texas for a long time. And that's the reason that I, you know, one of the times I went down there, I, I wanted to go fish that place. It's a neat lake. It really is a neat lake. And the, and the history of it, you know, precedes itself. And, you know, that's why I wanted to go there. So, anyway. So, 1943, January 1943, H.R. McGee catches a 13 and a half pound fish. And it's recognized at 13 and a half, which was the, the weight at Lakeside. Uh, it wasn't recognized at 13 even, eight ounces less. It reminds me again of the Freeble catch where yeah. state authorities recognized it as a record at 20 pounds, two ounces, rather than the lesser 19 pounds, 10 ounces. So they were taking the angler's word for it back in the day. And yeah. this record lasted for almost 40 years, Terry. But an interesting thing happened between H.R. McGee's catch and when it's broken in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And that was a guy, let's just, let's just call him what he was, the Orville Ball of Texas. Yeah. Yeah. You have, you know, Texas Inland Fisheries Director Bob Kemp, uh, and he's unable to get any state funding for his dream, you know, of providing monster bass to Texas anglers. And so what does he do? He does exactly what Orville Ball does. And I guarantee it that he read this in Bassmaster Magazine, or maybe, <laughs> may, maybe he read it in the, you know, the fisheries journals. You know, he could have read it in, you know, back then. He could have read it almost anywhere. He could have read oh, it yeah. in Sports Illustrated. There are a exactly. lot of places that covered. And what Terry's talking about here is Orville Ball was in charge of the San Diego area lakes in Southern California in the 1950s. And, and uh, 
And he, he, he was aware that giant fish were in Florida, but they were not in California. If you caught a six or seven pound fish in California, that was a monster. Well, yeah. Orville Ball decided he wanted to do something about it. And he thought, well, maybe those Florida fish are a different fish genetically. What if we bring those fish out to California? And, and we Orville have Ball, a whole episode on this. We have a whole episode. We'll link to it right here. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but Ball out of his, you know, possibly out of his own pocket. That's not clear but may have out of his own pocket paid to have thousands of these Florida bass shipped to California so he could stock them in those San Diego lakes. Uh, 12, 13 by, years later, gigantic by, fish it, start showing up. Yeah, and by 71, you've got fish that are showing up in the teens. Excuse me, in the teens. You know, you have... And by 73, before, you've got a 20-pounder. Exactly. So, so, excuse me, what does Bob Kemp do? He calls Florida, has them ship 2,000, you know, Florida bass fingerlings from uh, Rich, Fo uh, Rich Loam Fish Hatchery operated by the uh, Department of Fish and Game out of Florida. And they're stocked in a pond, uh, raised to three or four inches before they're taken away to uh, Stayway Ranch. Uh, and, uh, you know, the rest is history. You know, yeah, and he's doing sudden, this without permission from the state. He's paying yeah, for this right. out of his own pocket, <laughs> and he is, he is hiding the fish in these private mm -hmm. ponds so that nobody finds out about it. Then yeah. once he gets the go-ahead, he conveniently forgets to tell the, his bosses that, oh, this is already in the works. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, well, and you know, beg for forgiveness, right? I mean, exactly. <laughs> Easier to get forgiveness than permission. So that's exactly what Bob Kemp does. And mm -hmm. uh, so by the time he has permission, he, he transfers these fish to a state hatchery. And uh, the progeny of not, these fish... But that's not but that's not the, the, the only thing that, that he did. He also stocked bass from Cuba. That's true. He did that a little bit. He did that a year or two later. He stocked bass from Cuba. He stocked yeah. some of the bass from San Diego, California. Exactly. So he's, yeah, got, he's, fact, got, he's got genetics Jim from Brown, Florida. Jim Brown sent him the fish at an upper but, O time. But, but the truth is, Terry, that one way or another, all those fish came from Florida. Every gene yeah, they had a in every one of those bass, they were every worse. gene, every gene <laughs> in every one of those bass was created in Florida. So yeah, those were, they don't have a good yet. life in Florida. They don't have a good life in Florida. They That's have the why best they don't life. get as big. Ron DeSantis guaranteed them the best possible life in Florida. <laughs> we won't even go into that. We won't even go there. But anyway, uh, uh, so so you've got these fish that are taken to texas from from florida from california from cuba and suddenly they have a chance to grow much much bigger in 1974 yeah. terry and this one is is really cool to me in yeah. 1974 you've got uh texas parks and wildlife folks and and a, and a professor at the university of illinois uh who are who are wondering why these bass in in medina lake got so big so they're taking tissue samples and studying the enzymes in these fish. And they're saying, you know, these enzymes in these Medina bass that we found from way back in the day, not, not current Medina bass, but, but Medina bass from earlier, um, they're, 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 they're the same as Florida's. <laughs> they're the same as Florida large, which means, and this is going to be substantiated years later, because in the 90s, Another fisheries researcher does DNA samples on scales obtained from H.R. McGee's 1943 state record. 
she pulls scale samples and she determines that the, that fish had Florida strain influence. So that means that somebody somehow was stocking Florida bass in Medina Lake in the <coughs> 1920s or early 1930s. Totally believable. I mean, you know, we talked about this in the, uh, you know, one of our episodes. Heck, I can't remember which one it was off the top of my head. About the, the, the barrel biology that was going on back in the day. You know, and, and who is to say that some biologist in Texas, or who knows, maybe it was in Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, I don't know, brought a bunch of fish over and put them in the tanks here in, te in, in, in Texas. So... You know, there's a lot of possibilities of that. So, by the late '70s, uh, you've got fish in Texas that are approaching McGee's state record, uh, yeah. bigger fish than they've seen out of the state in decades. In 1980, somebody finally breaks H.R. McGee's state record. That record, McGee's record, had lasted for 37 years and yeah. 17 days until 1980 when an angler named Jimmy Kimbrell caught a 14.09 from Lake Monticello. Monticello was one of the very first places that, uh, that they put those Florida bass. And, uh, and, yep. and at the time, in 1980, the fisheries director for Texas, a guy named Alan Forsage, was the one who actually confirmed it was a Florida bass, and his name will pop up when we discuss Sherlunker. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, January 10th, 1981, John Alexander catches a 1423. So we're going to go through a bunch of record catches here. And, I mean, it's like the record, it's like California all over again. The record lasts for a few days, and then, boom, it's broken again. So January 10th, 1981, 1423. February 7th, 1981, John Alexander catches a 15-8. Same guy, two records, 28 days apart. Exactly. I mean, he, he breaks his own record record i mean it yeah and it, of course it was from a private lake but who is to say that this isn't one of those private lakes that was initially you know stocked with these you know foreign fish uh that's what i'm thinking that that this pond is or this lake is it's one of those private lakes that that you know was being used to to brood you know the the, the spawn of everything else that was soon to come so the, the record has fallen multiple times since then. Uh, and in yeah. fact, it's been broken six times. H.R. Uh, McGee's record, the, there's been a new state record six times since McGee. The current mm -hmm. state record is 18.18 by Barry St. Saint, Barry Saint Clair. He caught it out of Lake Fork in 1992. Now, two yeah. of the guys on that list uh, were fishing for crappy when they, when they caught state record bass in Texas. So apparently you need a crappy jig or maybe a minnow to catch the state record. It's better um, than cheese, right? At better than cheese, which is a California staple. <laughs> uh, but but H.R. McGee's record that lasted 37 years is now so far down the list of top Texas bass that you you have to hunt hard to even find it. And, yep. uh, and, and, and that's unfortunate because this is a state record that lasted almost 40 years. This was the standard bearer in a state where bass fishing is is near and dear to so many people's hearts and where there are there are you know over well over a million anglers every year hit the water in texas so that's considerable to hold a record that long and uh mcgee 
you know, fished the rest of his life. He moved to uh, the shores of Lake LBJ near Kingsland, Texas, when he retired yep. in the 60s. He was a charter member of the Highland Lakes Bass Club. Um, he did not live long enough to see the introduction of Florida bass via the state. Uh, and he didn't live long enough to see the Sherlunker program. Uh, but he was still on top of the Texas record books when he passed away of stomach cancer on October 21st, 1970. He was 69 years old. He's buried in Kingsland Cemetery. And Terry, as you know, if I ever get near Kingsland Cemetery, I'm going to go take a picture of his grave, pay my respects to the record holder. Yep. Um, and that's appropriate because he was the king of Texas was, bass fishermen. Absolutely hey. the king. And and that that's his story, folks. We hope you enjoyed it. Terry, your takeaway on the story of H.R. Fibber McGee and the longtime Texas largemouth bass record. I, I think it's a great story. I mean, it shows you, you know, what Texas was back in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, you know, there were some decent-sized fish, albeit, you know, they, they may have had, you know, Florida genes. Um, I mean, that, that's just another, you know, uh, you know, hat off the, you know, Florida genes. Not the state of Florida, but... It would, by, by the way, I am actually, if you notice, my background is different today. I am at the Casa de la Duke right now. Uh, we're, I'm here for the weekend. I'm going to be spending it with Ken and his, his lovely wife. And, uh, you know, I want to say thank you, Ken, for you know, providing me a bed and a bathroom. Uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> One and, more shot uh, at Florida and we're going to take away either the bed or the bathroom. We haven't decided which. You're going to make me an ambassador to Florida is what's going to happen. <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's a, it, it's, a, it's a cool story. And for the people from Texas, I mean, it's good to know your lineage, right? You know, this, is all, this all happened before the Sherlocker program, you know, went down. And, uh, you know, yeah, you had some Florida fish here prior. Unfortunately, they wrote known the lake that had them. Uh, but now you're pumping out, you know, hell, you, you got a 17 this week. So it should be pat yourself on the back for that i look at this story terry and i think oh the irony oh the irony they had florida genetics in texas they killed them all <laughs> only to bring them back with a sherlunker <laughs> program and that yeah. is my big takeaway here uh I, I think it's time terry what do you say should we yeah. do it yeah let's yeah, slam let's the door up. on this episode of the big bass podcast but before we go folks Please remember to subscribe if you would. Share, like, give us a comment or a review. Uh, we think it's a small ask, but, but it's a big help. And don't forget to check out our website. At thebigbasspodcast.com, you'll find our Big Bass Podcast calculator and our list of record bass plus supplementary material on, on the episodes. The site is a work in progress, but if you like the show, we think you'll love thebigbasspodcast.com. If you want to contact us, our email addresses are ken at thebigbasspodcast.com terry at the big bass and nathan at the big bass we are fans of yours we appreciate your support without you we can't do this uh thanks so much for for the kind words we love the comments we love the questions keep them coming we try to respond to everything out there my name is ken duke and on behalf of my partners terry batiste and nathan benson thanks for joining us be sure to check back next week uh, we're going to have a new show about a different big bass with a story that you will not and cannot find anywhere else. And remember, size matters.